in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 2. Isaiah chapter 2. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And here again, uh, just by way of reminder, Isaiah begins the chapter with an introduction that frames chapters 5 through 2. And he is going to talk about God's judgment upon the nation of Israel for their sin. But he begins here with this magnificent promise. And what he does is he points the people to the future when the kingdom of Christ is established on earth. And if you think with me, uh, why, why would he do that? Why would he begin with this beautiful promise and then speak about the coming judgment? Well, the purpose of the judgment is to purge the people of God. So he is encouraging the believers that, yes, a great difficulty is going to come in the form of judgment. But... If you persevere and if you endure, you will receive this kingdom that I'm promising. So give attention to the reading of the word of God, Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Hear the word of God. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Now, uh, the, uh, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the, of the Lord to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations, and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And as we saw here, you have the heading. And then in verse 1, Isaiah prophesies that Zion will be the center of worship. Last week we saw it will also be the center of revelation, where the word of God is, is coming forth. And now in verse 4, it will be the center of world peace. Zion will be the center of world peace. In verse 4. And look at, or note here with me, how this is described. He shall judge the nations and rebuke many people. Of course, the he, who's, you need to ask the question... Who is the he? Who is the he? Who is the he here? Well, of course, of course it's the Lord. But as we read Isaiah, we have to uh, keep in mind that there are 66 chapters in Isaiah. And uh, he fills in a lot of these gaps. Now, during a period of universal peace upon the earth, who is it that will judge the nations 
and rebuke many people. Well, he actually tells us in Isaiah 9. Look at Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 6. Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it and establish it with judgment and justice from that time forward even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So it will be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ who will reign during this period of universal peace and he will establish it. Now note the language that's used here. Or you can ask another question, right? What, what is it that he will do? He will judge and rebuke. Now, when we hear the, the word judge, some of your translated, translations provide a different word or sometimes even a phrase. And by judge in this particular text, it does, it, it does not mean to condemn. There's some translations that pick this up. So, for example, one translation um, uh, is, is, uh, goes this way. The Lord will mediate between nations and will settle disputes. That's how they translate judge as mediate between nations and then rebuke as settle disputes. Another does it this way. He will judge disputes between nations and he will settle cases for many peoples. So the idea here is not that he is sitting in judgment and condemning, but that he functions as a mediator between the peoples. He mediates all of their disputes so that there aren't any issues. And of course, since the foundation of his throne is justice, everything he's going to do and all of his verdicts will be just. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, and we're on verse 4. So he will, uh, yes, he will judge, but here he will mediate between the nations, and he will settle their disputes. One, one author writing about this particular word, he notes this. He says, in many contexts, this word has a, ju- a judicial sense. And it refers to the activity of a third party who sits over two parties at odds with one another. This third party hears their cases against one another and decides where the right is and what to do about it. He sort of functions as a judge and a jury. So, for example, this word is used in Isaiah, excuse me, in Genesis 16.5. When Sarah or her, at this point her name is Sarai, and Abram are having this dispute about Hagar. And she says this, my wrong, my outrage, this outrageous thing that has been done to me because Hagar is now mocking her because she hasn't had a child. She says, my wrong be upon you, or may it be in your lap. 
in essence, do something about this husband. I have given my maid into your bosom, and she saw that I had, that, excuse me, and she saw that she had conceived. I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between me and you. And there the word judge is this same word. And what she's saying, may he mediate between the both of us. Because you were supposed to do it as my husband. And you refused to do it. So may God do it. May God intervene. The Old Testament saints then looked for, in light of this text here. The Old Testament saints looked for the day when the Messiah would, by his rule, establish peace among God's people, because there was division at this time. Remember, the kingdom is divided. The Jews, it wasn't just one kingdom. Now you have two kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah and the kingdom of Jerusalem, two separate kingdoms. Well, the Old Testament saints looked for the day when the Messiah would, by his rule, establish peace among God's people and with the Gentiles. He says he's going to mediate between the nations. So they're waiting for this period of time when the Messiah would come and he would bring unity between the nation of Israel and then also between the Gentile nations among themselves and with God's people. Listen to the way Isaiah puts this in Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah chapter 11, I'll read verses 1 through 5 and then 10 through 13. And this, of course, uh, just for reference, if you look at verse 1 of chapter 11, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Of course, this is a reference to Jesus, the great David's greater son. Jesse was David's father. Therefore, from Jesse will arise this king, the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. So look at verse Oh, let me, uh, I'll just keep reading. The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. This is what uh, Solomon had, right? Do you remember that case where these two women come before Solomon and they're, in essence, two prostitutes, right? And they both had babies and one of them lays on a baby and it dies and she steals this other woman's baby, And then Solomon makes this wise judgment. He says, well, what we'll do is get me a sword. We're going to cut the baby in half. And you take one half and she takes the other. And the mother says, no, let her keep it. Uh, Don't cut the baby in half. And then Solomon's wisdom is displayed and everybody knows, oh, this man is wise. Well, Christ, one greater than Solomon has come in the son of Jesse. His delight... Verse 3, is in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of his waist. Now look at verse um, 10. So, again, another passage, the Messiah comes and he establishes justice. Well, look at verse 10. Part of what's going to happen is uh, described here. Uh, 
And in that day, day, there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people. For the Gentiles, so what, do you, what does a banner do? Right, so when you're driving, maybe we don't use banners that much, but we do use signs, and you're driving on the highway, and off in the distance you see a big Chick-fil-A sign. It's calling you, right? God, it's God's chicken. So, so that sign calls you. And in essence, what, what, what this text is saying is that the son of Jesse is going to be a banner. He's going to attract the nations. They're going to be drawn to him. For the Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. It shall come to pass. So the Gentiles, right? This is, this is part of what Isaiah was ta- is talking about and predicting in chapter 2, that he is going to sit as judge over the nations. They're going to be attracted to the Lord Jesus. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are from Assyria and Egypt, from Pathros and Cush, from Elam and Shinar, from Hamath and the islands of the sea. He will set up a banner for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Also, now note this, also the envy of Israel, excuse me, Ephraim shall depart and the adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall fly down upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. Together they shall plunder the people of Egypt. They shall lay their hand on Edom and Moab. And the people of Ammon shall obey them. So what's going to happen? There's going to be unity among the Jewish people. And there's going to be unity among the Gentiles. And then between the two there will be unity. And the Lord will sit and reign, rule and reign over them. Now, how will the nations respond to his rule and reign? Look at chapter 2. How will they respond to the rule and reign of the Messiah? Look at Isaiah chapter 2. They shall beat, in verse 4, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So, what's he saying here? Well, very simply, their weapons for feuding against each other are turned into weapons for farming. That's what's going to happen. Their weapons of war are no longer necessary. They're not going to use them for war. They're going to use them to till the ground and whatever it is that you use pruning hooks for and all that stuff. That's what they're going to do. Now, if you remember, if you remember last week we were talking about the Noahic Covenant, and there was this, I said, one way to describe the Noahic Covenant is build, do not destroy. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Do not destroy, and in particular, it was the taking of man's life. And God is saying when the Messiah, Isaiah is saying here, of course, God, through Isaiah, is saying here that when the Messiah establishes his kingdom, Upon the earth, among the people who are drawn to the Messiah, Jews, Gentiles together, there will be no need for war, for fighting, or for defense, because there will be peace. 
instead of destroying one another, they'll be cultivating and filling the earth. Now, if you think about something else in Genesis 2, when the Messiah brings together the nations like this, he's sort of reversing what happened at the Tower of Babel. So, now, but, but how should this truth, fourth question, right? The, the, the first question was, who's going to do this? What's he going to do? How will the nations respond? The fourth is, how should this truth revitalize us to worship the Lord this morning? Because this is a call to worship. How should this truth revitalize us to worship the Lord this morning? Well, first, hope. It, this, this, these kinds of texts should really fill us with a great deal of hope. A joy, gratitude. So, how do you define joy? Here's one way to define joy. Oh, hope, excuse me. What does it mean to have hope? Well, there is joy, gratitude, and assurance in God and his promises to us. When we read these kinds of passages, we shouldn't immediately think to ourselves, um, boy, you know, what, you know, God hasn't fulfilled his promises, you know, look at everything that's going on all over the world. No, what we should do is we should look at these texts in God's word and be filled with joy, gratitude, and assurance that one day God will bring these things to pass. J.I. Packer notes with regards to war, uh, excuse me, hope in particular, J.I. Packer says, Christian hope expresses knowledge. Right? So when, when a person has hope, what they're doing is they're expressing this knowledge that they have in their mind. It's, of course, derived from God's word. Christian hope expresses knowledge that every day of this life and every moment Beyond this life, the believer can say with truth on the basis of God's own commitment that the best is yet to come. In God's providence, you may, you may have a great life, a good life. There are many people who do. Even in the midst of difficulties, trials, and sufferings, you can look at your life and say, you know, in all honesty compared to others, God has been exceedingly gracious to me. Not only in my salvation, but in, with my family, friends, career, all these things. Yet, at the same time, that same Christian can say, but there is much better coming. And when we look at these kinds of passages, that is what should fill our hearts. And as we see the chaos sin has caused in the world, Afghanistan is one vivid example that exists um, outside of our country, and even all of the difficulties that we're having now as a country, our nation is really divided, and kind of always has, but now increasingly more. And maybe even the own difficulties that you're facing in your life, or in your own community, in, in your own home. What we must do is set our hope on the Prince of Peace, who will one day establish universal peace, a universal peace that he has already inaugurated. Now, I want to give you, so that's first, is these texts should fill us with hope. The second thing, um, it's more, more than anything, this is a theological category that I, I want to give you. A theological category that I want to give you. And the technical term for it is realized eschatology. Or another way of stating it is, um, and this is a phrase, but already, not yet. These truths have already been inaugurated by the coming of Christ into the world, but they are not fully ours yet. 
but we do have them. One author who wrote a book on this subject, uh, the title of the book was The Presence of the Future. And that future peace that we long for, we have it now. Christian people walk around with this kind of peace. These realities that belong to the future world have been granted to us now for our edification and enjoyment by virtue of the person and work of Christ, by virtue of who Christ is and what he has done for his people. Remember, the peace that we long to see in the world is already ours in Christ. Think about it. The, The greatest peace that a person can have is peace between themselves and God. And we have that now. Christian people enjoy that peace today. There is no enmity anymore. So, uh, two texts from Ephesians. You could turn there if you like, but I'll read, uh, I'll, I'll read them. The first is... The first is in Ephesians 2. In Ephesians 2... Paul, speaking of what Christ has accomplished for his people, he says this. So the first aspect when we read these kinds of passages, hope. They should, we should hold on to them and know that one day this peace will be universal and in the world, but also for the believer, we enjoy it now. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. But now in Christ... Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace in in his person. Uh, The reason why there is hostility, there is, uh, or to use Paul's language, there is enmity between God and man is because we are unrighteous. But in the, perfect, in the person of Christ, we have the righteousness that we need before God. And Jesus freely offers it to his people. If you're a Christian, you have that righteousness. Not only that, there is a penalty that we have to pay for our sins. God doesn't sweep sin under the rug. If a soul sins, that soul must die. There must be an accounting for our sins. And Jesus accounts for our sins by giving himself for us. He is our peace who has made both one. Now here's the enmity, right? Remember, the nations come to God, the Jewish people come to God, and they're one now. Well, Jesus himself is the peace who has made both one, Gentiles and Jews. He's made them one. And has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances. The the Jewish cultic system of worship. The law of commandments contained in ordinances. So as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. If, If I wasn't a Christian... This is not, well, let me say it another way. I'll say it the backwards. If you weren't Christians, you wouldn't want to spend any time with me. And that's a fact. 
you wouldn't like the person I was, and I probably wouldn't like the person you were if we weren't Christians. We wouldn't spend any time together. And we're not even talking about uh, Jews and Gentiles. We're talking about Gentiles. We're all a bunch of Gentiles. I wouldn't like, you know, wouldn't like the food you eat. You wouldn't like the food I eat. But what has God done? God has made us a family. He has made us one in Christ. He has established peace among God's people. We enjoy and participate and must pursue this peace corporately in the life of the local church. We have it already. It's not like it's not ours. Jesus um, and, uh, or God constantly reminds us that these things are ours so that we can live in light of them. Next. <clears throat> in Ephesians chapter 4, same book, beginning at verse 1. Look at what Paul says. After, um, um, well, let me just read it. 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling which, with which you have been called. Right, so what is the calling? The calling that we've been called to is to fellowship with God and Christ by the power of His Spirit with God's people. That's the calling that we have. We are called to be the church. Walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering. Why? You know, to roughly paraphrase this bearing with one another in love, because now what God has done is He has united you to a bunch of other sinful people who are, you know, probably not as bad as you are, but they sure are going to get on your nerves. So you need to learn to bear with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So you see, it's a reality that we now have, it's inaugurated. But it, not, it has not been established completely and fully. Now the Lord Jesus Christ does sit and judge among us. How does he do that? Right here. So we, if we have any problems or disputes, where do we go? Freud? You know, Dr. Phil? Oprah? No. We turn to the word of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ then, he instructs us from his word. As we worship this morning... We are a people who have peace. We have peace with God. We have peace with one another. And we offer that peace to the world. That's what we do. So again, when we look at these kinds of passages in the Bible, these passages in Isaiah, we have to remember, yes, there is a future element where there will be, and here's, here's something interesting, and I've been talking about this a lot. Um, at the end, so for, for those who hold to, there's going to be a millennium, a thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. If Isaiah is talking about that, which most would say he is, there's no more war. That's what he says in Isaiah 2. Well, how, the, how, how then will there be an army that arises at the end of that thousand years with weapons to fight the king of kings? 
Jesus, uh, <laughs> right? You, you could uh, argue that Satan is going to rise up, as somebody just murmured, but he says that they will no longer learn war. Their swords are turned to shovels and pruning hooks. You see, a fitting together your Bibles is more than just a, an eschatology chart. It's about reasoning with the text. So we as a people, we have peace with God, we have peace with one another, and we offer peace to the world. That is what we do. And as we worship, the Lord revitalizes and strengthens us to do this. So in light of these things, brothers and sisters, let's pray together. And then after we pray, we will sing. So let's, let's pray. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we come to you with great joy, with great confidence, and with anticipation that the kingdom that you inaugurated in your first coming will one day be established fully. And we praise you, Lord, for the grace that you have bestowed upon us, your people, that we are able to enjoy that peace with God, that peace with one another, and offer that peace to the world. We ask, Lord, that you would please uh, forgive us for our many sins, and that you would, from the right hand of God's throne, send your spirit to be here with us now. Rule over us by means of your word and by means of the power of the Spirit. Help us, Lord God, to willingly volunteer ourselves to you. May the presence and the power of the Spirit assist us now as I preach and as your people listen and as we sing. May the beauty of holiness be exemplified this morning in our worship. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you would, please stand and sing.
Standing for the reading of God's Word. Our Old Testament scripture reading is in Exodus 8, 1 through 15. Exodus 8, 1 through 15. And the Lord spoke to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go, they may, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. So the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, and on your bed, into the houses of your servants, and on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. And the frogs shall come up on you, and on your people, and all your servants. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your rod over the streams, over the rivers, and over the ponds, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. And the magicians did so with their enchantments and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may take away the frogs from me. And from my people, and I will let the people go, uh, that they may sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, Accept the honor of saying, When I shall intercede for you and for your servants and for your people, to destroy the frogs from you and your houses, that they may remain in the river only. So he said, Tomorrow, and he said, Let it be according to your word, and that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. And the frogs shall depart from you, from your houses, from your servants, and from your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and, the, and Moses cried out to the Lord concerning the, the frogs, which he had brought against uh, Pharaoh. So the Lord did according to the word of Moses, and the frogs died out of the houses, out of the uh, courtyards, and out of the fields. They gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But... When the uh, Pharaoh saw that there was a relief, he hardened his heart and did not heed them as the Lord had said. Please remain standing as we sing.
Please remain standing for the New Testament scripture reading. Mark 10, 13 through 27. Mark 10, 13 through 27. Thirteen through twenty-seven. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Now, as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, uh, do not... Uh, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had, many, he had great possessions. And then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, Who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not for God, for with God all things are possible. I pray that God would add blessing to the reading of his word. Please remain standing.
If you would, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. And I'm going to read verses 11 through 17. Um, this, I think, unless, well, I think this is going to be our last week on the Noahic Covenant. But, you know, I might get home and start reading and think, I, there's, I missed something. Uh, let me read the text, Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. And I'm going to read down through verse 17. Genesis chapter 9, beginning at verse 11. Hear the word of God. Thus, I will establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you, and every living creature that is with you, for perpetual generations. I set my rainbow in the cloud, And it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. It shall be when I bring a cloud over the earth that the rainbow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. The waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. The rainbow shall be in the cloud, and I will look on it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every, and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, This is the, the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. Amen. So, as we look now at the sign of the covenant, the rainbow. The rainbow is the visible sign of this particular covenant. And now, as we think about God remembering, he says when this, it's not that God forgets. That's not the point there. But what the rainbow does for man, it is a confirmation. Every time the the rainbow is in the sky, it is a confirmation of this promise that God made. When he says that he will remember his covenant, in essence, what he's saying is that I'm basically going to put a banner in the sky to remind the world. Not that God forgets, but as one commentator puts it, that the eye, our eye, may affect the heart and confirm our faith. That's what the rainbow is supposed to do. The rainbow catches the eye, it should affect the heart, and it should confirm our faith in the promise that God will not cause the entire world to be flooded again. But now, who, is the, who does God make this covenant with? Or who is the sign for, if, if uh, you want to state it that way? It's with, uh, one of the ways that he puts it, is that it is between himself and all 
the earth. Look at it in verse 13. I will set my rainbow in the cloud, and it shall be for the sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And then he says, you and every living creature, every living creature, all flesh that is on the earth. So this covenant that God makes is between himself and everything that has the breath of life in its nostrils. Right? So all of the animals, all of the humans, all of them, all of them on the earth. Now, why would make God make this kind of covenant? Why would he do that? Why would he make a covenant between himself and the world? Remember why he brought judgment upon the world. is because the wickedness of man had increased upon the earth, particularly violence. We're killing each other. And that's why God gives that word of judgment in, nine, in chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, that if anyone sheds man's blood, his blood ought to be shed. Because that was the issue. There was an increase in violence in the earth. So God flooded the entire world. But what he is saying now is, that is not the way that I will judge the world again. And I am going to give you a promise that this is not what I will do. The reason is because the seed that was promised in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, must be born. Jesus must be born. Not only must Jesus be born, it's also, in a very true sense, assurance to the believer or to the church universally that all of the called will be called. They will come to know the Lord. But now, what does it indicate? What does the bow indicate? Well, we're not told explicitly what the sign or the symbol represents. So, compared to the Lord's Supper. When we take the Lord's Supper, what does the bread stand for? The broken body of Christ. What does the fruit of the vine stand for? His blood that was shed. So we're not told explicitly what the bow communicates. But now, the word for rainbow in um, older translations is just bow. And it's the word that is used for a weapon that shoots arrows. That's what it stands for. It's not the word rainbow. He says, I will put a bow in the sky. And it's the word bow, like bow and arrow. So for example, this word is used in Psalm 7, verse, verses 12 through 13. And it's actually one of God's favorite weapons. So the psalmist writes, this is David. If he does not turn back the wicked person, God will sharpen his sword and bend his bow and make it ready. He also prepares for himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. And the word is in verse 12 where it says he bends his bow. It's his weapon of choice. In Habakkuk 3.8 through 9, O Lord, you were displeased with the rivers. Was your Habakkuk 3 verses 8 through 9. Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea? That you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. So, what one possible meaning for the bow in the sky is... Is this the rainbow is an emblem 
It's a symbol of mercy, of delayed judgment. God, as it were, has hung up his weapon of judgment. He's put it up. And it's not facing down, it's facing heaven. So there is a stay of judgment upon the world. I'm not going to flood it again. So that humanity now can live in this earth and do what? Well, hear the gospel. But now what are the new covenant implications as we take the supper? As the rainbow reminds us that God will not judge the world by means of a global flood, so the supper reminds us that we will not be judged for our sins because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed for us. So as we look at the supper, these are the things that ought to come into mind. Judgment will not happen to me. I will not be judged for my sins because Christ stood in my place. As the rainbow is an emblem of mercy, so are the bread and the fruit of the vine. If God had given us what we deserve, we would have been crucified and spent an eternity in hell. Yet because Christ's body was broken and because his blood was shed, we have peace with God. And in mercy, he has provided a sacrifice for our sins. In Christ, there is no delayed judgment. You understand? When a believer comes to faith in Christ, there's not a delay of judgment. There is a removal of wrath and condemnation. So we no longer live condemned. We are freed. We're justified. The justice of God has been satisfied and we live by grace through faith. So if you're not a Christian, please do not take the supper. The supper doesn't make you a believer. That's not what the supper is for. If you're not a Christian, what you ought to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then all of the mercy, grace, and goodness of God will be bestowed upon you. Believe in him. Trust in him alone. If you are a professing Christian and you're living in unrepentant sin, you're sinning, and when you leave here this morning, you're going to go back to living the same way you were living the rest of last week. If that is the case, do not take the supper. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 that you're drinking judgment upon yourself. Please do not take the supper. If you are a Christian who, in dependence upon the Spirit, with the instruction of the Word of God, you're fighting sin. And you're struggling against sin. And maybe you're not, being, you're not victorious right now over that sin, but there is a fight, and you're praying, and you're pleading with the Lord, and you're looking for ways to, to overcome this sin, and you're speaking with mature brothers or mature sisters to assist you in your battle. Take the supper. The supper is for you. The supper is a means of grace. It is a reminder that Christ's blood was shed for you. You have been saved. And in time, the Lord will give you victory over that sin. So please come to the table. If by the grace of God you are running well, you're living a Christian life in dependence upon God, and by his mercy and grace you are doing well and you're strong, the supper is an opportunity. It is a visible opportunity for you to confess your reliance upon Christ. What you're saying, in essence, when you take the supper is that my life is not my own. My life has been purchased by the blood of the Lamb. And all of the good things that I have are because of Him. 
It is a visible opportunity for you to confess your reliance upon Christ for every good thing that you have. So, brothers and sisters, if you would, beginning with this first row, first row, second row, third row, and then all the way back around, please grab a bread, grab a cup of the fruit of the vine, and uh, have your seats. We'll pray, and then we'll take the bread together. You can come forward. Let's pray together, and then we will take the bread. Lord, we praise you for your goodness to us. Even on a, on a, on a rainy day, when the rainbow appears in the sky, our hearts should be affected, Lord, because of your mercy. And although we may not be literal murderers, anger, and bitterness in our hearts, Lord, accuse us of those sins. And as we see the rainbow, Lord, we, we can see your great mercy. And we praise you for it. Most importantly, Lord, we praise you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who died to pay for our anger, our wrath, all of our sins. And as we gather together this morning in your assembly, we give you great praise. We thank you for the opportunity to study your great works. Help us to have great pleasure in them as they honor you and give you glory for your righteousness. Lord God, please bless the taking of this bread. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please take the bread with me. with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we've been on the chapter on love as sort of an overview 
Oh, excuse me. He, so when he says knowledge here, he means the ability to understand mysteries biblically defined by supernatural communication. So there are truths in the Old Testament that God enabled. For example, I'll give you, uh, and I'll give you one here from Paul, that Paul was able to understand because God revealed to him the mystery. Uh, look at Ephesians three, one through six, prophecy, foretelling. That's pretty simple. Tongues. The ability to communicate in languages without learning them. We see that, we saw that last week in Acts, I think, chapter 2. But here in Ephesians 3, this concept of knowledge as the ability to understand mysteries by supernatural communication. Paul tells us this here in Ephesians 3. That, um, so let's read it, 1 through 6. Paul writes in Ephesians 3, beginning at verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation, you see, supernatural communication, by revelation he made known to me the mystery. What was it? As I have briefly written to you, and this is an aside. This is an aside here. This, in your Bible, there's probably brackets here because this is not the, his main point. As I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So what mystery is he talking about? The mystery of Christ. Which in other ages, this mystery was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets And here's the mystery, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. That's the mystery. Well, how was this mystery revealed? How did Paul come to understand this mystery? This mystery was laid in the Old Testament, and God revealed to Paul, enabled him to understand. Sort of like Jesus did with the apostles, I showed you last week, from Luke chapter 24, and then we saw Peter do it in Acts 2. So because of this, um, so, okay, so, um, prophecy, tongues, knowledge. Those things will fail. Well, prophecy will fail. What does he mean by that? What's interesting is that this is a different word for, than the word that's used for love. It's not the same Greek word. This word has to do with being brought to an end. Com- they will be completed. So, What he's saying is that all of the prophecies that are in this book, they're going to be completed. There will be a time when they are all fulfilled. Every, excuse me, every last single one. It's not going to happen with love. Love will never be completed. There's not going to be an end to it. As to tongues, they will literally, it says, cease. It means stop. They're going to stop. There's going to be a point in time where they are no longer needed. And as I argued before, I think that time has already come. And as for knowledge, this special knowledge that God gives and enables uh, by means of revelation to interpret mysteries in the Old Testament, he says that they are going to disappear. That gift will be done away with. There will will be no need for it. When we get into verses 9 and 10, we'll understand why clearly, but I think the reason is because we have the New Testament. Remember, when Paul is writing Ephesians, he doesn't have the rest of the New Testament. 
But when we have the New Testament, what do we have? We have, a, we have an inspired book on hermeneutics. That's what you have. If you want to know how to interpret the Old Testament, all you got to do is go to the New One. You go to the New Testament and read it. Therefore, there is no need for this special, you know, God gave me a word for you this week. From the, no. No, thank you. Keep it to yourself. <laughs> Why? Why do these things disappear and vanish? I think I'd explained it enough, but to summarize, these gifts were for the edification of the church at a particular period in history. Or, you could say, a particular dispensation or for a particular age. And it was for the apostolic age. Love is for the eternal edification of God's people. That's what love is for. Love is not just for now, but in the new heavens and the new earth, we will continue to love God more and more and his people. So these gifts were for temporary edification. Love is for the eternal edification of God's people. And this supper is a token of God's love for us. It displays it. The reason why I go to heaven is because his body was broken and his blood was shed. And you know what that is? It's a display of love. He loved me, so he died for me. And so John puts it this way in 1 John 4.10. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And this, you know, this foretaste of love that we get in the new heavens and the new earth, I mean, it's going to erupt in absolute beauty. If you think, right, you think, so God made this world for his glory and for our enjoyment in the the garden. And Adam and Eve messed all that up. Thank you. (laughs) But still, there are places in this, but this world is still for our enjoyment. So there are places, I was looking at pictures of this week of the Grand Canyon from helicopters or satellites. I'm not sure what it was. Not very far. But far enough where if you're, if you're standing looking over the edge, you don't get this view. And it is like one of the most beautiful things you could see. It's better than paintings you know, or, or, or artwork. Just amazing. If we were standing in the new heavens and the new earth, we could not take in the beauty. You won't be able to. That's why God will give us glorified bodies so that we could take in the beauty of an earth that is sinless. Now that's love, unimaginable. And that's just a little piece. That's not even the most important part. The most important part is we'll be there with God and his son and all of his people forever. And this supper is a token or it's the symbol of the key that gets us into heaven, which is the death of God's son. So if you would please uh, pray with me and then we will take the supper together. I mean, we'll drink the cup together. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you. And we confess, Lord, that the man, the woman, the child who fears you is blessed. Help us, Lord God, to delight ourselves in the truths that you reveal to us in your word. Help us to rejoice in knowing that you loved us first. And sent your son to be the propitiation, the propitiation for our sins. And may this be a great motivation for us to love you and to love your people. 
In Christ's name we pray, amen. Please take the cup with me. Rick will come around and pick up these cups when he gets the offering. Uh, If you would now, please stand and sing with me.
And now if you would please turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 26. Deuteronomy chapter 26. And again, we're, we are making our way through the Bible. And, and particularly when we're in the Old Testament, what we're doing is we're gleaning principles of giving. And in Deuteronomy chapter 26, this is a, just a wonderful a principle, a wonderful reason why the Jews were commanded to give their first fruits and tithes to the Lord. So I'm going to read um, basically uh, 26, uh, verse 1 through uh, verse 15. Uh, yes, verse 15. Deuteronomy chapter 26, verse 1 through verse 15. Now, hear the word of God. And it shall be, when you come into the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, and you possess it and dwell in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, which you shall bring from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and put it in a basket, and go to the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. Remember, at this point, they don't have the land, so Jerusalem, the, the temple, none of those things are there. And this is, again, eschatological. It's future pointing for, for them at that time. Verse 3. And you shall go to the one who is priest in those days, and say to him, I declare today to the Lord... Your God, that I have come to the country which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket out of your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a Syrian. Not a Syrian, but a Syrian. My father was a Syrian about to perish. And he went down to Egypt and dwelt there, few in number. And there he became a nation, great, mighty, and populous. But the Egyptians mistreated us, afflicted us, and laid hard bondage on us. Then we cried out to the Lord God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and looked on our affliction and our labor and our oppression. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. He also brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, behold, I have brought the first fruits of the land which you, O Lord, have given me. I'm going to keep reading, but isn't, this, isn't that beautiful? With, with that kind of disposition to come to God and to give of the things he has graciously provided for you? Then you shall set it before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. So you shall rejoice in every good thing which the Lord your God has given to you and your house, you and the Levite and the stranger who is among you. When you have finished laying aside all the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, and have given it to the Levite, Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, 
so that they may eat within your gates and be filled, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the holy tithe from my house and also have given them to the Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandments which you have commanded me. I have not transgressed your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. I have not eaten any of it when in mourning, nor have I removed any of it for an unclean use, nor given any of it for the dead. I have obeyed the voice of the Lord my God and have done according to all that you have commanded me. Look down from your holy habitation from heaven and bless your people Israel and the land which you have given us just as you swore to, your, to our fathers a land flowing with milk and honey. And now, why were they offering these things to God? Why was it that they took the first fruits and brought it to God and basically had a party, right? They, they brought it there, they praised God, and they rejoiced. They were remembering his goodness. They, they didn't do, they did not do anything to receive this land. When this land was promised to them, they weren't even alive. It was just Abraham. And then eventually they went to Egypt, but how many of them went into Egypt? Those 12 brothers. And they became a popular, a huge nation. And then when they became a huge nation and they were in bondage, what does God do? God delivers them from bondage and brings them into the land of Canaan. That is a picture of what God does for us in our redemption. We are born in bondage to sin He delivers us, and he promises to give us a new heavens and a new earth, a land flowing with milk and honey. Their redemption is a picture of our redemption. Theirs is earthly. Ours will be earthly also, but spiritual, and it's dynamic. But it is, uh, our giving then ought to be a response to the goodness of God to us, to all of the things he has done for our good. Not only, not only, um, our family life and our vocations and all of the good things on this earth, yes, we give because of that, but because of the spiritual good God has done for us. And these offerings ought not to be something that we give grudgingly. Right? So you show up to church, oh, this guy's going to talk about giving, let me give him five bucks so he could be quiet, or a hundred or three hundred or five hundred or whatever you want to give. No, if that is your disposition, don't. You take your money, you put it back in your pocket. Don't give a, a red cent. But if you are glad because of the goodness of God towards you, it's a time to rejoice and to celebrate and to give to him for his goodness. So brothers and sisters, in light of these things, let us give to the Lord as he has provided for us. Let's pray together and then Rick will come forward. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your kindness. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to be a people who rejoice in every good thing which you have given to us. In Christ's name we pray, amen.